Huxley basically argued if people would lose their freedom because they were so entertained by screens, by entertainment, uh, by pop culture, that they would voluntarily give up a lot of their personal information and a lot of their agency. There's no doubt that Orwell got everything right, I think, in my opinion, except one thing, perhaps. Government, I don't think that's going to be Big Brother. You know, I think it's going to actually be a combination of Amazon, Google, and Facebook. It's about unlimited access and power. These companies know you better than you know yourself, and they know everything you do and say in private, and they also understand how to manipulate that knowledge. Public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific, technological elite. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua, your host for this podcast, and I will bring to you today part four of the collaborative episode that I did with the Panoptic podcast. If you don't remember, as a little refresher, the last episode, part three, we left off talking about data and technology and how companies collect all this data, how they use it, how they use it to influence people and these types of dynamics. And that was left off with Jason and we'll pick back up with Juan's response to that. And we will continue and play the rest of this collaborative episode. And this will be the final part. So enjoy. Let me give you one more example. And then, so uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up is it's an article by uh, an immediate theorist at the New School, Shannon Mattern. It's also in Places Journal, and it's it's called Instrumental City, The View from Hudson Yard, circa 2019. This was written in 2016. Uh, and, and Mattern is talking about Hudson Yards in New York under Bloomberg, the sort of vision for the city that Bloomberg was implementing at the time which is very corporate driven. And she and she writes, you know, quote, modeling basically about what this city would be and what it would do by creating a totally ubiquitously computerized environment that would link sensors, let's say, to to your bathroom, to your, you know, to the park, to the the sewer system so that everything, every movement, every kind of every time you flush the toilet, every time it's it's creating some form of data. She says, quote, modeling software will process data on pedestrian flow, traffic, indoor and outdoor air quality, energy production and consumption, waste streams, and citizens' health and activity levels. Residents and workers equipped with tracking apps and smartphones as sensors will enjoy a, quote, interactive data-driven experience, end quote, and developers can use the harvested data to improve operational efficiencies, productivity, and quality of life to build a community that's more quote livable equitable and resilient so she's she's quoting kind of the you know the the literature created by the companies that are doing this but in ideal it's a totally it's a totally deadified environment where in which every movement every action is being somehow moved and i think that brings a bigger question of of this what you just said jason property how much of that is property and how much of that within our own which within our old framing which says, hey, we really value the autonomy of the individual, but we also value the neutralization of um, power so that there is a sort of consensus, political consensus of, of what we consider the, the rules of interaction that are morally acceptable at a universal level. Um, 
you know, these are the tensions that I've been trying to talk about, like as, as sort of a legacy, the Republican and liberal tradition, you know, the political will formation, civil law, and the autonomy of the individual. You could see how this model of making property, it's not just that your property is being taken away as an individual, it's, it's that your very act as an autonomous individual are being, are being graphed, uh, tracked, put together into models that in a way the end game and i think you brought this up jason the end game is to be able to predict the future your future your actions your your desires your wants um for the end of monetization for the end of increasing the bottom line i think that brings up you know and when that starts overlapping with governance it brings up you know it, it's hard i think to start theorizing and thinking how does it totally short circuit this 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 framework that and perfect as it is, was supposed to both protect autonomy of the individual and the sort of public interests and neutralize power by uh, via the, the the media of the law. And in a sense, we could see how it's imperfect because out of that, you know, the market sort of like in a sense grows. It, it grows. It grows too powerful, maybe to an extent, to be managed, and it creates. There's a necessity for this huge administrative state, and then these two get bound up, tied up, and uh, private interests are able to, in a way, uh, steer to an extent the administrative state for their interests. So it's really hard for the individual to feel in this very complex society that they have any that their interest and their opinion has any kind of filters in any way to what legis the legislators do. I mean, think about how upset people are with politicians and why it is that people are going to anti-establishment politicians they feel that their opinions and interests the problems that they face do not filter up to legislators because legislators are listening to big tech big big industry big big finance big you know lame it right and that is being translated into industrial policy but here now you have the total saturation of the environment by 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 these very sophisticated instruments that it's not I don't know if I mean I'm I'm not sure I'm not I'm not trying to counter what you were saying Jason I'm just I'm trying to think out loud whether the right way to think about it is is this our property being taken or is the fact that we've turned and privatized and let um, industry in a sense be the one that owns this data and uses this data for its ends has in a sense taken away from us the capacity to to really wield a very powerful new tool that we have, which is big data and algorithms, which give us a whole new perspective on reality and on things we could never track before that could be wielded for the public interest, uh, perhaps, <laughs> under the right regulatory frameworks. How do, you put, how do you institutionalize that in our system in terms of the constitutional law and to the law system and to the system of, of division between private and public? I think it's an open question, but I think what we haven't... Our 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 1.0 uh, software for 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 constitutional law and for you know our constitutional um, inheritance, which we could call like law 1.0 or constitution 1.0, could never have imagined this you know this uh, uh, this algorithmic governmentality, this algorithmic capitalism 4.0. Right? It's like there's a mismatch between these two dimensions, and there's a way in which we have to rethink the very framework of our institutional um, apparatus if we want to be able to reclaim and connect once again public interest and public the public good 
to law to a, to to administration. If you know what I'm trying to say. Right. Um, if, if we were to let the markets continue to collect and monetize on this data, though, at that point, you know, maybe beyond the the conversation on property rights, but yeah. do we demand that we are paid for for that data, which is uniquely tied to me as an individual person and my behavior? I mean, I'm not sure if that's the way to go, but another way to go is say, hey, any data you're producing is 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 a public good. It's it's a public good that should be uh, wielded. Um, you know, I think there's a complex question here. The question is, you're implementing all these technologies. You have all these algorithms that are parsing data for a specific end. I mean, at the end of the day, it's to be able to tell the future so they can uh, predict your desires and interests so they can sell you something. How? What other model could we create where we have technology that can produce data and sift it and uh, and and go through it to link uh, informal publics, the public sphere, to regulating its own interests in a more democratic way and to linking up with formal public spheres, legislators and so forth, to pass laws that, uh, that regulate that, you know, regulate, um, that, that, that pass laws that program administration in a way that is reactive to, to people's interests. So for instance, I mean, you could use you could use algorithms and data to make, in a way, um, both legislators and administrative people more reactive to, to people's actual claims, uh, their their complaints, their ideas, what they actually want. Um, but that is not what data is used for. Data is used, uh, data, is, data is proprietary, it's it's private, and it's used to tell the future so they can sell you things. I mean, I'm putting, very, very, putting it very starkly, but I don't think we've, we've began... It's been, I think it's hard. I think we're at the cusp of thinking, what is it? How could we create a new institutional fr- a framework and for rethinking what this data is and who's going to own it, under what platforms, what are they going to be able to do with it? I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible wealth. Think, uh, to take one example, think about this, this city in Finland that uh, used data basically to create a public kind of bus system. And by using data, they could create a very efficient public bus system. Because they could, they could kind of like users could like I guess through an app or whatever it could tell the thing where they were and it could sort of pick up the best path or whatever. But this this calls for the ownership of that. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be public. It could be you know a private company working under a public uh, contract. But what they data can be used for is beyond goes way beyond sort of like maximizing the ability to tell the future so I can sell you something. It goes to be able to, it goes towards coordinating uh, very complex things like infrastructures. Uh, but the the question, the key question is how do you make the flow of the way these things are managed democratic, right? Um, how do you connect publics and their interests and their reactions and their opinions and their autonomy to the legislative process, to the administrative process? And how would, how is this technology that we have access to now how does that get? How does that start link relinking those spheres in a way that we can hardly, I think, start to imagine right now because it's because it's hard to think outside of the framework that exists right now. I think um, I have some answers for a lot of these questions here. Um, yeah, they let let's go back to um, wrapping up. You'd talked about government contracts, and we were talking about the role of government and surveillance, and um, how that 
how that plays out. And the project that came to my mind was Project Thin Thread, and that was one developed by the NSA, and they had built this prototype. It was a working prototype, and this was just prior to 9-11, and they had a way of basically intercepting a lot of data, like phone calls and things like this, and analyzing that data with built-in privacy safeguards so that people's private information wasn't able to be accessed without a warrant. And this project, like I said, was a working prototype. It was in existence. And three days before 9-11, not to insinuate that there's a connection there, just for a time reference here, um, (laughs) they canceled that project and they ended up going with a contract for a government contractor to develop a different project called Trailblazer, which was pretty much the exact same thing, just without the privacy safeguards. So, um, and it was very expensive. I think it was around $200 million or something like that. So we see that there are definitely deliberate decisions made by government to go the route of surveillance and data collection versus the route of what one you're talking about a lot, the classically liberal tradition, the enlightenment tradition of liberty, personal freedom, these types of things. And that's not the direction that government seems to go. Um, When we're talking about data, uh, I think Jason posed the question, why don't we see profits from our data? And I think you slightly answered yourself as well. But um, I, I would expound on that and just say that we do see the profits from our data being used by big tech and the profits are paid to us, not in money, but in services, number one. And the other one that we don't see as much would be stocks. So the idea here is that as Google, for example, collects all this data, makes all these decisions, makes a bunch of money. No, we're not directly getting that, but their stock price goes up a lot. And the majority of America has their retirement in something like a 401k or an IRA or something like this. And most people in today's world have those invested in ETFs and index funds, which are very heavily weighted towards big tech. And so if stock performance is doing well for the industry as a whole, then my 401k is going up, my retirement savings is going up, and I have free use of these services. Now, I would not argue that that is a great trade. Uh, Personally, I don't think that that is a good trade at all. But that is the trade that people are making. And so that would lead to the question that was posed, I think, by Juan, should we own our data? And that brings up the idea of digital ownership as a whole. And this is an issue that we have in today's world that didn't exist before, that digital assets are not assets that we actually own, mostly in today's world. If you do not control the network that they're located on, you do not own that asset. So even if I buy a book, for example, and I technically own that book on a platform online, that platform could then delist that book, and all of a sudden, I don't own it anymore. I paid for it, I owned it, but all of a sudden, it's gone, and I can't access it because I don't have 
control over the network and I don't physically have that book. Now, maybe I could have downloaded it and put it on a USB and saved it that way. That probably would have been a good idea. But most people don't do these things. We basically lease um, the ability to access things online. That's how we treat digital assets now. And we treat data much the same way. We don't really think of it as an ownership issue. And I say we in the sense of most of society. Instead, it's things like streaming platforms like, um, what would you say, Pandora or Stitcher and places like this where you can stream music, you can stream audiobooks, you can stream whatever you want. You have something like YouTube where you have access to all this wealth of information, all these videos, but you don't actually own it. Even if you create a video on YouTube and upload it, technically, they do have the power to delete it and it's gone forever. And there's nothing you can do about that. And so with any of these digital assets, ownership is something that arguably doesn't really exist. And um, the question of how do we deal with this, the, well, an answer would be something like blockchain technology, where maybe you have a distributed network that can't be hacked or altered or taken over. It's not controlled by a single corporation, but instead it's a decentralized network owned by all of the users where information, where data, where digital assets are truly owned. You have complete access over your assets, whatever those might be, in a digital sense. And so you get a lot of the benefits that we have now Plus, you get a lot more when it comes to privacy and ownership, but obviously that comes at a cost right now, especially. It's um, not very convenient. It's not always very fluid to use blockchain products, something like even just buying Bitcoin. You have to go through an exchange. You've got to link a bank account or a credit card or something, and you've got to buy it. Then you've got to have a wallet that you then send that Bitcoin to so that you can store it safely. And there's this whole process it's not very user-friendly at this point. And the point is that most people aren't interested or willing to jump through hoops of any kind, even if it's this tiny little hoop that they just have to hop through. They don't want to do this. They want they want convenience. And so the question was also posed, why is this the case? Why are these the issues we're dealing with? Why don't people care about this stuff? Why isn't this as much of an issue as we think it should be? And I guess my opinion personally is that the modern education system has a lot to do with this, where if you think of how our modern education system is structured, you have an expert at the front of the room, you have a textbook in front of you written by approved experts, and these experts, both written and verbal, are dispensing specific information to you, the student. And the goal here is that you memorize specific data sets and preordained mathematical methods, and you spit them out on a test. And that is the way that we learn. That's the way our education system is built. If you are very into, let's say, a poem that you're writing, or you're very into an essay that you're writing, well, when the bell rings and you're in school, uh, it doesn't really matter how much you care about this thing you were working on, your project, or what you were learning, because you need to follow the system. You need to go to the next class. That's what happens when the bell rings. You, You must obey. And that takes precedent over what you're learning, or what you're doing, or what you're creating And so you mentioned like communicative action versus strategic action. And you have said before that advertisers, corporate media, they use communicative action. 
and they don't really use, or sorry, they use strategic action and they don't really use communicative action as well. And when I look at the education system, it seems like it's not quite as communicative where you're teaching things like critical thinking, logic, rhetoric, these types of things, intrinsic motivations. That's not really getting pushed in our current education system. Instead, it's more of this strategic action where you have a specific person or specific sources dispensing specific information, very highly specialized. It standardizes the way we think and what we know. And you have standardized tests, of course, to make sure that this is happening correctly. And so when you come out of this, um, typically in a given high school, you don't have classes like logic or rhetoric or entrepreneurship or personal finance. Um, Some of these do exist here and there, but in general, that is not something that's in most schools. That's not generally being taught to most teenagers. So when you see that the younger generation that is coming up out of this system, that if you go all the way back to the Prussian education model, that's what it was designed to create, would be good uh, workers, good employees in a factory setting where they do rote tasks over and over again, very repetitive. They have to obey management. They follow directions. They follow orders. And they do their job well. That's kind of what's what what the Prussian model was designed to create, and that's what we were built on in our current model. And so you wonder then, when people grow up and we're in society and we're living in the world, why don't people think critically? Why aren't they very good at expressing their views or debating different topics? Why are they not very good with their money? Why are they so much in debt and not really thinking about it? Why don't they care about the ownership of their data? And so I would argue that at least a large aspect of this is education, is the way that people are educated, just the system itself. It's not that teachers intentionally don't want kids to learn. It's just that the system is designed to create a certain thing, and it does that well. But that thing is not necessarily critical thinking, and it's not necessarily complex problem solving. It's other things. It's very highly specialized things. And there are benefits to this. It's not all a horrible bad thing. But there are also costs to this. And it it seems like there is a definite influence for from how people are educated to these topics that we're talking about now and how society views these issues of data and privacy and ownership and the role of government and these types of things. There is a correlation there, at least to some degree. Some argue not much at all. Some argue it's um, the end-all be-all. But there, there are definitely some aspects here that affect us today and society as a whole. And The question Juan posed multiple times is, what is the end game? What do we do? How do we use this data, this technology? How do we turn this into a force for good? How do we use this for positive governance and improving our systems? How do we do this? And the thing that really pops into my mind as you're describing the things that you want are things that I actually just read about, or at least listened to, today in the book uh, Technocracy by William Henry Smith. And he describes technocracy in this way. I kind of wrote down a few notes, so they're not exact quotes, but I'm looking mm-hmm. back at them here, and they should sound fairly familiar. That you, when you have matters of chance in society, they're distributed to all. So if an act of God happens and a hurricane hits, it's not just the area affected by the hurricane that that is hit by this disaster, 
all of society then pitches in and they all feel that burden and it's more of this collective view. And that's the idea is that it's much more collective. He uses this term, the common wheel, and all things are done for the good of the common wheel. And that is the focus. It's humanity as a whole. He says we need a national ideology and purpose. And I think it's Stiegler that talks about that as well, about how purpose is what drives society and people need an ideology to follow and that really aids in effective governance and an effective society. Well, um, William Henry Smith says the same thing, that ideology and national, national purpose is a really big deal. And he says that there should be a national council of scientists in power within a democracy. So he's really focused on having having individuals with liberty and democracy and having them with a with large control over their localized systems, more regional governance, things like this, their individual lives, their personal data, these types of things. That is very democratic in his view, but at the same time, instead of having what we think of now as a modern nation state, you have a group of experts, a group of technologists, technicians, scientists, these types of people, and those are the ones making the broad decisions that affect everybody. They control a new currency. They control using resources sustainably. Um, he talks about something like a universal basic income. And again, these are all things that I, I have heard echoes of as we've been talking here. And so this is an idea that came out of the 20s. And so this isn't really anything new, so to say. But when you pair that with what I mentioned about the education system, that when people come out of our modern public education system, they they largely trust experts. They largely trust studies and research and anything that is official. There is statistically a lot higher rate of trust in corporations than there is in government governments. And so when you ask a teenager, for example, do you trust um, your government more? Or do you trust Facebook more? They're probably going to say Facebook, and they're probably going to have bad things to say about both of them. But they do trust experts more um, in general. And w- there is this, this idea in society today that if we just have enough data, if we just have enough information, if we have the right algorithms and the right technology, then we can solve all of our problems. We just need more data. We need to collect more. We need to analyze it better, more efficiently. We need stronger AI, these types of things. And so there is this predisposition for the type of governance and economic model that is laid out in the um, in the idea of a technocracy, one where you have experts in charge that make their decisions based on a lot of data that they are collecting about all of their citizens, and they're supposedly making these decisions in a more altruistic way. So the idea is that Humans have these basic instincts that drive us. We are driven by the will to live, the will to make, the will to master, the will to take, or the will to know. And so he argues that the will to live, like basic survival, base desires, these types of things, that was more in ancient civilizations. That was a driving instinct. And then you have this will to make, to construct, that kind of took place after that. You have this will to master, to control, to grow societies and empires and large bureaucracies. And this took over after that. And then you have this combined with the will to take, with capitalism and 
and this would be to acquire and to hoard. These are the ideas that he's talking about here, and we have that with modern economic incentives. That's what's going on from the Industrial Revolution. And he says that the next age should be an age driven by the will to know, because he says that these other instincts are more animalistic, but the will to know is different. It is uniquely human. And that if someone is driven by the desire to know, they're not trying to control people. They're not trying to take from people. They're not trying to create something new. They're trying to understand things. They're trying to learn more. They're trying to know how something works. And then they'll use that knowledge, ideally, to govern society in a very positive, efficient, effective manner. And these people will be much more trustworthy than politicians. This isn't necessarily a political system, although it kind of is. He says it's not. But you have these experts that are in charge, these technologists, technicians, scientists. Those are the types of people that are driven by the will to know. And so in his opinion, those are the people that need to be making these types of decisions. And again, we see this with the trends that are going on. The one thing you've mentioned, Juan, multiple times is smart cities. Well, that's a part of this whole idea, this global idea of sustainable development. And there are a lot of very positive things with this, that we need to take care of our environment. We need to make sure that we are taking care of the poor. We want to end poverty. We want economic um, equality for everyone, at least to, on a very basic level. We need um, healthcare for all, all these types of ideas. It's all wrapped up in the idea of sustainable development that's largely pushed by the UN and more global um, oriented groups. And so that's basically what they're saying. It's basically technocracy. They, they think that we should take a lot of the data, a lot of these scientific studies. We need to implement them on a mass level. And national governments need to probably give up a little bit of their sovereignty in order to make this happen. And we do this on a very localized level. We build these smart cities that collect a lot of data, have a lot of processing power, a lot of surveillance. And we use all that information to um, better... I guess better manage society is a good way of saying it. And so my personal theory is that if we do have something like this come to pass, and that is the direction we continue to go to, then we will have a technocratic leadership that is making these types of decisions based on data collected by technology, all these things we've been talking about. And this will to know might be their main drive, but I, I think it'll either go one of two directions. It'll either be that they will use this system, this um, governance model to either satisfy more base desires, like um, was talked about by William Henry Smith, the will to live, to make, to master, to take, these types of things, um, basically more um, things that are focused on oneself and that will drive people, and that would be more of the idea of the Machiavellian prince. And you have this idea that they are ruthless, they use cunning, they use force, and they do this to control a society. And it's not all bad, because they can control a society very efficiently, very effectively. And so that is what Machiavelli proposes, and um, plenty of arguments as to what his intent was with that book. But the point was that you either have this model... Or you have someone driven by the will to know, and their goal is to satisfy 
a desire to serve. And that is one that William Henry Smith does not mention. That is one that I thought of myself when I was trying to think of, are there any other desires when I was looking at his system? And the will to serve is one that he doesn't mention. And it admittedly is fairly rare. But you do have this desire that people have, some people have, to altruistically serve people, people that are very nurturing. If you think of the idea of true love, if you think of a lot of religions um, are backed up by this and follow this model of serving others. And so you could have a more technocratic system that governs our society and does this well. And the people in charge are driven by the will to know with the goal of serving society. And in my opinion, that would be more like the uh, model in Plato's Republic, where you had the philosopher king or philosopher kings. And that's more what I see would happen. You would have um, people that are well-versed in many different areas, in philosophy, in science. They're using the scientific method to determine things, and they're doing what they believe is best for society. Now, that sounds a lot better than a Machiavellian prince, but uh, the idea here is that um, the Machiavellian idea would be one that uses force and cunning and deceit to rule over a society, but it works very well. Um, the philosopher king, if you actually look in the Republic, then that society is focused on uh, censorship and social engineering. And those are the key components there that also many people would probably have some issues with. He wants to get rid of uh, all music is what he says, but art, literature, these types of things that don't fit uh, the ideals that he wants to be produced in that society. And that controls the society. You control education, you control genetics, things like um, eugenics and this type of stuff is something that occurs in the Republic from Plato. And so to me, it seems like this idea of let's use data and technology to better govern society with this new system, a new economic model that's not just based on profits, and we have people in charge that aren't just these corrupt politicians, corporations aren't the ones making all these decisions, you have more of this scientific council that's in charge, and they're using reason and logic and science. This is good stuff. But if you look at the way that plays out, you know, more than likely you're either going the route of they have a lot of control over information and social engineering, uh, more of a brave new world model, or you have this model in this system totally abused through coercion and force and deceit. And we do see um, aspects of that in today's governance models as well. But it's it's interesting. It's an interesting model that does have a lot of similarities with things that people like Andrew Yang has proposed and things like Agenda 21 or Agenda 2030 out of the UN with sustainable development and things that, one, you've talked about multiple times with smart cities and using data to better serve society. And so that, that's at least my personal um, prediction. My personal uh, proposal here would be that that is at least the direction we're headed and it seems like society is very open to that. And so, yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see how these things progress. And when we have these anti-establishment movements with Brexit and someone like Donald Trump getting elected, nationalism, isolationism, we do see these nation states kind of pulling back 
from a global model in the nation state playing less of a role. Like we've already mentioned, corporations are playing more of a role. And you have um, institutions like the UN and sustainable development that are um, having more influence in society. And so there, there are trends in this direction. And it could go in a good way. It could go in a bad way. We don't know. But it's a proposal, at least, that seems to fit a lot of these things that we're talking about. And so that's the one that, that I've been researching lately and to me that is very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, I think if, we, if we're building on the past, right, and if we're building on, on, uh, on past experience, I think one important way to frame it, which is a, maybe a little different than yours, Joshua, is you know what we the the inheritance of um both the liberal and republican political theoretical traditions are both uh are basically a balance an institutional framework that we have in places like the united states and europe and around the world for neutralizing power on the one hand what people how people can impose themselves on others but also uh, creating again, as I've as I've sort of emphasized, a certain realm of autonomy. Uh, within that realm of autonomy, we have included things like private property uh, in a very wide sense. Now, a lot of um, I think what you're I think what you know I think one important thing to think about is. Uh, when we're talking about, let's say, when we're talking about the owner, what exists today in terms of big data and big tech and algorithms and changing and reconfiguring the ownership model and what data can be used for, I think what what um, people, uh, what some of us are trying to try to propose, is not necessarily some kind of technocratic society that would be ruled by, let's say, a council of experts that would use data to better manage society in line with some kind of ultimate uh, efficiency as an end. But rather, how do we, how do we um, look at what we have, what we have had had, and the way that and the way we've used different technologies, law as a technology, money as a technology. Uh, to regulate basically our living together, to balance that that tension between private and, and public interest, private autonomy and public and general public interest. Now that we have algorithms, what can we do with that? What realms of life should be left to communicate face-to-face communication, to informal communication? To deliberation, to deliberation, uh, uh, discursive deliberation, and should be sealed off from interference from either the you know government administration, from algorithmic and technical administration, and from the market. And which ones should be left to, let's say, the market to some realm of a technocracy that is somehow reactive to that discursive sphere. And to administration, also reactive to the administrative to this cursive fear. I think what I'm trying to emphasize is not the notion of some technical society, which I I would personally be very. I would personally think that is 
um, that you can't have technocratic solutions to political issues. We could go back to the famous, to the, to the, to the very famous philosopher Hannah Arendt, you know, who talks about basically um, how humans can only be human. The human condition is characterized by the fact that we rely on a public setting and public life and the perspectives of others and ourselves to have a self at all. It's only in the glaring light of the public sphere, and she's, her model is the, Greek, the, the ancient Greek pol, the polis, Athens. It's only in the public sphere where, because of the perspectives of others, because of our discussion and the way that they respond to us, because of the way they point out our errors, because of the way they react to our, to our speeches, to our talk, because of what the way that they reflect ourselves back to ourselves— and the way that they reflect the reality around us to ourselves, it's only in that sense that we can get a sense of reality. Um, this remains a primordial sort of level of politics, that face-to-face -face relation as a way of not only making sense of a reality in a community, but also a horizon of experience. However, in our very complex societies that we live in today, where markets regulate you know, trade in, in, in chains of production that are extremely long, where something, you know, your iPhone sitting in your pocket was was made by, uh, put together by someone in a factory in China, uh, but the minerals came from Mongolia and Bolivia and all these different places, um, where the world is extremely complex and we have already a technology like money and the market that has created this complexity. What parts of that can be brought back down to the level of discursive decision-making, communicative rather than strategic action? What part should but be brought down there? How can we use and utilize algorithms to, in a sense, bring, um, make more accountable democratic frameworks? Now, it's not about top-down. It's about bottom-up. That's what I'm trying to talk about. It's about how do you make institutions, the administration, the state, and markets more responsive to Communities that are deciding on their values through a discursive framework that is constantly evo constantly evolving, and where they're coming up through their interactions, face-to-face -face interactions, linguistic discursive interactions, on what they value. You know, it's not about. I think we have to get away from this thinking that uh, that it's viable. Let's say anything like a platonic ideal society would be viable. It's within our. They would think about our modern context. Where we have very high, to, very high thresholds for what we consider legitimate political uh, formations, we would never give up our personal autonomy um, for some kind of republic, for some kind of platonic republic where some philosopher kings get to wield and decide what's good for us. We say, as people who are inheritor, who are inheritors of the Enlightenment, that we are the sovereigns um, as a people, and we do not. And that doesn't, we don't turn that over very lightly. It might seem that way, I think, day to day that we're turning that over. But when push comes to shove, I mean, in a place like the United States, I think sooner or later um, people would fight for that freedom rather than, I mean, I think it's up to, I tend to, to I tend to be positive, to be a little pos, uh, a little optimistic that I think most people in the United States are so imbued by a, by what I would call a modern perspective on politics that they would not easily give up Yes, they're willing, they will give a lot of freedoms up for a lot of reasons, but at some point they will say no more, right? And I think we're seeing that in the way that people are reacting in their voting this, this time around. Uh, some people read it differently. But I think, you know, I, I think I want to clarify some things is, uh, about what you're saying. I think it's important to build on what we have 
and think about it's not about how do we create a system that algorithms sort of like run things from the top down it's how do we take what we have which an institutional framework where the people who created it 200 plus years ago could have never imagined industrial capitalism globalization neoliberalism algorithmic governmentality big data the kind of technology not even television you know and how do we reshape that model so that it's so that at the level of where people are determining what's good for them there's a sort of transfer of that public opinion to lawmaking and from there directly to to the administrative state um so that it's reactive to to the demo, to the polis to the to the to the people at large not to strategic interest of corporations not to the strategic interest of uh, and definitely not to the technical rationality of some elite that decides for people what's good for them. You see what I'm trying to get at? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I would you like know, to I think, and, make a clarification myself yeah. as well. Um, yeah. I do totally agree with you. And I do think yeah. that, uh, I do believe that, especially in America, people would not give up their freedoms, period. Not only lightly, but just at all. They won't yeah. do it. And so yeah. Yeah. Um, one clarification here is that um, most people who are proponents of a technocratic type of a system do believe in actually giving the individual even more freedom and even more liberty and making political systems much more localized and regional so that, yeah. for example, mm -hmm. if you have um, Atlanta, the city of Atlanta in Georgia, the city of Atlanta has very different political views than the whole entirety of the rural areas throughout Georgia. And so if you actually gave the city of Atlanta much more freedom and liberty to make their own political decisions, and you gave the rest of the state or the rural areas at least the ability to create their own political systems, and you do this, like you say, from a bottom-up approach, then the individuals have a lot more power and a lot more freedom, and that is something people can really get behind the catch is that if you do that, you are necessarily taking power and sovereignty away from the nation state in order to give it to these more localized, more regional bodies and political entities. And when you do that, you do create a little bit of a power vacuum and you do need somebody with more of a global perspective, more of a perspective about the planet and the human race. That is not something that's going to be on the minds of the city of Atlanta, more than likely. But it would be on the mind of maybe something like, we'll use the UN for an example, just because they currently exist. And they do have more of a global outlook, a more uh, a view of humanity as a whole. And so... If you treat a technocratic solution not as a political entity, but more of a governance and technical entity that makes some decisions and does research and studies and collects data on a more global perspective and tries to distribute things evenly around the world for all of humanity and then you have the individual and the small local regions, they have a lot of say over their individual lives and over their communities, and they can build yeah, relationships yeah. and uh, transact the way that they want to yeah. and work the way they want to and take care of the poor the way they want to, and they can do this. 
And so, again, you can have that where you actually give people more freedom, more liberty. And I think that's usually the proposal. But when you do that, you necessarily are transferring power from the nation state to the more regional bodies, more like um, the original concept of the United States of America prior to the Constitution, more of that kind of idea. And when you do that, you do still need, I think most people believe, you still need something. You need some body that has a larger perspective. You need some conglomerate of maybe representatives of the people, representatives of governments, representatives of corporations. You need people, you need somebody, you need some body to handle some of these global issues, something like global warming. That would be nearly impossible to deal with if you are completely localized to different cities and small regions. You need a large body to deal with these types of things. And I think people are very open to that. And people not only are open, I think they want that. And so I I do see how that would fit in. Um, Another kind of random side note, I I don't know if you ever looked into uh, democratic confederalism. Have you ever looked into that? No, I don't think I don't think I have. Okay, very interesting. It 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 really falls in line with what you're saying. So you had um an area in northern Syria, what you've heard on the news as the Kurds, um, this area known as Rojava, and the way their governance system was set up is they declared autonomy from the local nation states, and there were millions of people. It was a very large group, and I think only about maybe sixty percent were Kurds. There were a lot of Arabs and a lot of different people. But the way they set it up is that they would have these very localized councils that would meet up. And so you'd meet up with the people in your neighborhood and you would make decisions that affected your neighborhood. And then a few people would go from that council and you would have one that was more the city block, so to say. And they would have a council that would meet up that affected that region. And then you would have maybe a city council that met up and you would have representatives from all the different city blocks that would go to that and, you know, so on and so forth. But the idea is that it's a bottom-up approach it is very democratic, and it is something that um, avoids a lot of the issues and pitfalls that we have with modern governments. And so um, it, it worked. It actually worked very well. They had uh, mandatory, you had to have 50% representation of women on these councils. And this is yeah. in the middle of this Turkey and East, Syria. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, given the context here, that's a pretty big deal. And um, so they did this. But the key as to why it actually worked there seems to be that they all had this ideology of community where they viewed things from a very collectivist viewpoint. They have this more Eastern mentality versus the individualism of the West. And they were willing to go to neighborhood councils and go to a million different councils and talk to their neighbors. They built relationships. And yeah, it's just what I what I'm hearing is that yeah we want something like that, but reality is people are largely not building face to face relationships in today's world, and people yeah. are largely not interested in philosophy or political theory, and people are not really broadly educated um, aside from highly specialized um, fields, and so yeah. I, I just don't know if it's realistic to um, say that people as a whole will do anything like this. And you mentioned like we or what's best for us. And it's just that relies on the common person, the common citizen to step up and have some civic responsibility and personal responsibility. And I think most people would rather 
um, transfer that responsibility to the state or to a corporation or yeah. to someone else, um, their employer. And so that's where I think our our biggest sticking point is with yeah. any of these ideas is the individual person. Yeah, and I, I think we're fundamentally in agreement here. I think, you know, I think what, what you were just talking about is is a big discussion in political theory and it has to do with to what extent, let's say, is something like the Supreme Court a steward for democracy in a sense, like watching out for democracy and then occasionally in really heated moments, politics heats up and people step into the public sphere and actually say, hey, we need this, we need that. But most of the time people are willing to let, let's say, the institutions sort of work it out. And that's why we've created, that's why in a sense, the robust framework in which you have a legal system that has something like a judicial review body that's supposed to, you know, again, neutralize power, not only the executives, but the legislative is important. I think, I think what, and I think what you were talking about is, is I, I agree with it, actually. I, whether if, if, if I get, if I understood you correctly, I think we do need a sort of rescaling of levels of governance from the global, sorry, from the local to the, to the national, where uh, there's a new re, a redistribution of powers, a re-neutralization of powers. It's about how do you neutralize powers because you can't expect people to act morally, really. That's not what creating a modern institutional framework is. You want them to, but you can't expect them to. So the, the whole the whole idea, the, the nugget, the inside of the, the distribution of powers is you never give anyone body too much power and you try to create mechanisms to somehow to somehow transmit a very messy um set of positions in the world by people from different perspectives into a legitimate set of laws that work for most people if not all majority of people but have to but at the end of the day have to have some inbuilt fail-safe sort of um uh regular uh uh fails of sort of like boundaries that you can't cross, you know, so that you protect minorities, so you protect people who don't, you know, who might have different political views and so forth. So when you're talking about, I think, that you do need some kind of like national level bodies that sort of think can translate very technical and complex information into a decision-making process. I think that that is true. The question then also remains, though, how do you make sure that those continue to flow into the political process in a way that's legitimate and where people are able to, in a sense, it's interact with that the, the public sphere. Uh, and, and I think we're I think you're a lot of the things you're you're pointing out are very insightful and I think get to these problems that we have without how do you create a robust democratic system in a very complex society technologically uh, where people are most likely most of the time not going to be fully heated up in the political process. I mean the Ruyinva where I mean these people are fighting for the lives. Right. Of course, they're going to be like going to councils every day, but you know, it's it's in our consumer-driven society of complacency. It's hard to imagine people getting up every day to go to a, the 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 neighborhood council, the city council, the regional council to make decisions and make sure that democracy is in their hands. And so, so I think you're bringing up a lot of really fundamental questions. And yeah, it it is getting a little late. Um, I'm enjoying massively the discussion, but I'm also. F- Starting to get tired. <laughs> Fair <laughs> and enough. I, and and I don't, Jason, are you awake over there? I have a pounding headache. <laughs> and if you'd like, I could leave us as I typically do with a consulting e change management perspective. <laughs> what's, what's and then that? we can go to sleep. Uh, give us your consulting management perspective. And I think maybe we, I don't know how you feel about it, Joshua, but I'm happy to wrap up and, and yeah, that's say fine. that we did, we had a pretty good conversation. 
This has been good. I mean, I, I'm we're almost at four hours. <laughs> Lord, at how long we've been talking and how much we've covered. Yeah. Uh, it's great. So, so I, um, you know, I as our listeners know, and um, you know, maybe just to give a quick introduction to Joshua's listeners, I work in the change management area in in consulting, basically. Mm-hmm going into organizations and we use systems to collect data on staff and leaders across the organization. We identify coordination issues, silos, risks that are not being communicated up and down the command chain and across the organization. Um, And then we apply that data to try to expand awareness, understanding and engagement about the changes that the organization, the leaders want to implement. We build new systems and processes to get everyone tracking towards the same goals. And we have analytical models that track how someone uses their time, but that data is largely used to identify offices that require additional resources and support to be successful. So often these are organizations where employees were not empowered to influence decision-making processes or they didn't feel like their voices would be heard. But by standing up modern knowledge management systems, breaking down communicative barriers, the research shows that these strategy and tech pairings create more successful organizations with better integrated, happier employees. And of course, we create profit with greater efficiencies and reduce costs. But we need to test these change management approaches in the public sphere, stripped of their capital ends to answer what Juan has described as an empirical question, how to optimize the uh, the, uh, production and distribution of resources to achieve public needs and tie this to democratic processes through technology. And maybe it's something like a blockchain, Joshua, like you were talking about. But but I think if we take a a broader perspective on some of these practices that are being developed and and, um, innovated on within these management consultancies that we've been talking about there's a lot of uh, good that we can do with with the approaches to data collection and the technologies that are are paired with that and and the strategic action that comes with it strategy isn't all bad it's just you know what it's paired with the context in which it's occurring and yeah. um, because it's something that happens fundamentally in our lives we are always strategizing yeah so but that's you know we, we can continue to hash that out you and i want but <laughs> yeah i mean i mean i I, th- I think in some ways I feel closer to your perspective in a sense that in reality we can expect most people not to be some kind of ideal, you know, Democrat, not in like the U S Democrat, but like democratic oriented sort of personality type, you know, yes, there are going to be some people who think are always thinking about the common good and about hearing as many reasons as they can and voting based on what they think is, but a lot of times people are going to vote for their interests Sometimes those interests are going to be narrowly conceived in terms of whatever, whatever, you know, their wealth, their, their, their race, their culture, whatever. And the fact, and, and I think, Jason, I think the big insight there is how do we, you know, our, our legacy is very much a legacy of how to neutralize, how do you neutralize sort of these human, human faults, right? The fact that we are faulty creatures the fact that our actions have un- unexpected consequences, the fact that we are liable to hurt each other if we don't have ways to regulate our interactions, um, the fact that we have fault, we have a very limited capacity to tell the future, and we have um, the world is very complex, and we always make mistakes, and there are always externalities, as you call them, to our actions. So how do you 
how do you neutralize these problems, not only in terms of the individual, but in terms of the corporation and in terms of technologies? I think it remains an empirical question of how do we build on our legacies, um, on our legacies of the system of rights that we've inherited in private and, you know, through law, um, the market systems that we have, which I think are, are really important to, to be critical about. You know, I don't think you can, I don't think any of the questions, we really haven't talked about it very much, but I don't know, I'm not going to go into it because we'll be another four hours, but you really can't, I think, you really can't uh, go in depth into this unless you have a critique of capital and understand the logic of capital and the good things about it, how it's an ex expansionary technology that in, is super powerful and very productive and that it's destructive, that it's very destructive and that it has it and it's, and it's, and it pits capital against labor in a way that, that, you know anybody who looks coldly at the history of cap the capitalism sees is an, an ever recurrent tension, um, a battle between between uh, those who own uh, capital and those who own, own nothing but their wages, and are trying to reclaim as much free time as they can, and those who are trying to claim as much work as they can for at least for a little pay. I mean, there's a tension built into that, uh, which I think overspills into the political arena and in a struggle. Uh, for rights and we have to think you know how do we you know how do we parse out as as joshua was saying how do we rescale um the dimensions of communicative action versus strategic action given the fact that we have something like algorithms now which which in a way can structure reality in a way that we haven't thought about i, I really think it remains an empirical question i think i think at the end it remains how do you balance out autonomy of the private individual with the public interests and how do you neutralize the fact that people most of the time are imperfect and act strategically and and with a very limited horizon of not only of of orientation of values but also faulty ideas on the world right i mean we think we know something and then two years later we look back and we realize we were we had our you know in hindsight we see the world in different in a different way that works politically as well um so I do, I do think Jason, that's a good maybe framework for you, that you were bringing up, like this idea that it's really an empirical question: how do we neutralize these dimensions of life to create robust democracy, democracies? And and, and uh, in that way, I really think people across the political spectrum, not always, <laughs> some people are just going to be so dogmatic you can't, but are going to be able to think about, oh, okay, I see how our supposedly antagonistic interests can actually align when we start thinking about things this way. Yeah, I want to make some comments too that um, really correspond here that it's very important that we as a society and we as individuals particularly build relationships and that we have meaningful discourse with each other and that mm -hmm. we increase our education. I think these are some of the keys to progressing as a society and progressing in these ways that we are talking about need um, progression and that we want them to progress in a positive way. And I, I do think that change management and strategic action will definitely be implemented. These things will be happening. And so I believe my role and the way listeners and other people should be viewing this is that we want to educate others to pursue these methods to improve society and to educate others. We want people to use change management strategies and strategic action to better their lives and the lives of those around them. That is the goal. 
But we also want to educate people and people should recognize that the use of these methods will be undertaken by institutional players as well. And there will be governments, there will be corporations that will use change management and strategic action in order to steer society as well. And they have very different motives and incentives than the individual focused on liberty. And so these are things that I think are the most important. I think education is one of the most important things. And I think it is very important for us and for us as a society to make sure that we are pushing this idea of building relationships, continuing our education, learning more, and having meaningful discourse and conversation with one another so that we can be a part of a positive shift in society and be a part of um, encouraging this trend to be one that is more towards a an optimistic outlook versus the dystopian possibility that we all recognize is a possibility. And so yeah. that's the that's the focus that I would want to end on. Yeah. No, I and I agree with you, Josh Josh. And I would only add the, the, the element that I think, you know, education and the fact that people have to politically be active too in a way make sure that those actors which are going to implement a sort of technical rationality that people mobilize politically because that's the only way that they're going to be able to in a way influence the institutional framework to neutralize those players um and i think that's where real politics is really important and people's involvement and mobilization in politics and in a democratic politics is, is fundamental you can't you can't take back the political system and democratize it unless people get mobilized and actually realize that there's that there's a system to, in a sense, continue working. Uh, there's a democ- democratic project, unfinished, imperfect, always, that needs to be continually worked on. Yeah, well, I guess if we have discussed everything that we think we can discuss in one sitting, um, I do want to say thank you to you, Juan, and you, Jason, for doing this with me. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think we covered just a ridiculous amount of stuff. And I have much more, I'm sure you do too, that we could expound on for hours and hours. But I think we have done a very good job. I think we have covered a lot of stuff, brought up some very interesting and important questions about the trends in society and with technology. So thank you guys for joining me and doing this. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know what you think, Jason, but I think we we have like four episodes. Yeah. <laughs> we can have a conversation about how we're going to break this up, but uh, this has uh, really been great. Um, I'm uh, glad that uh, we were able to uh, find so many intersections between the kind of core interests of, of our uh, shows. And uh, I think uh, both our, our listeners will really enjoy this conversation. So thanks so much, Joshua. Yeah. Thank you. Jo- yeah. Thanks Joshua. Yeah. You're welcome. So that's the end of this episode series with the collaboration that I did with the Panoptic podcast. It was very enjoyable. We obviously covered a lot of different things, broad range of topics. Um, For a little background information, we had a general outline that kept getting expanded and expanded, and I had my own personal notes on it. And that outline itself was roughly five pages of notes that I printed off and had notes for. And we covered roughly a page, maybe two of those. So there was a lot of stuff that we 
uh, had considered covering and that we roughly were thinking about. And we pretty much touched on most all of those different topics, but by no means did we get in-depth on all the things that uh, we had thought about. So if you can just imagine that this four-part episode could have been you know, two times as long or more, it's uh, a little mind-boggling, but it definitely went well. And again, we did hit on most things. If you notice, kind of at the end, uh, a few of us kind of did some long longer monologues to kind of cram in all kinds of stuff there at the end. And um, I know I definitely did that. And so it did work out. And that episode, I think, or these episodes, this series, I think turned out really well and is a good ending for this first part of season two. It kind of catches us up to modern times, talks about technology and some of the influences there. I got to go a little bit more into technocracy, which I now realize that I should have done in the very first interview that I did with uh, Pete Quinones. When I did that one with the host of Freeman Beyond the Wall, I mentioned these trends of trending towards a technocratic society. I'm not even sure if I use the name technocracy, but I talked about the parallel of the nobility from the Reformation time and that parallel in modern times being corporations and uh, foundations and worldwide groups of experts and that kind of stuff. So I did hit on the topic and kind of broadly stated it, but I realize now that technocracy is not something that most people are very familiar with at all or have any clue what it is. And um, I think in a lot of the early interviews that got misunderstood and probably would have in this one as well, if I would not have explained that a little further. So I was glad I got to do that in this episode. And I, I think after going through all of these interviews, you should be very well introduced to this concept of the parallel between these two time periods of why this is relevant, how it's relevant, what some of the examples are, and all of these types of things. You should even get a good background in the history of that time period that we'll be referring to with the Reformation, coming out of the feudal system, the monarchies, how the church was structured, all these things. We covered it all. And so the goal was for that to be kind of an overview and a history lesson, and a preparatory introduction, all of these things in one. And it actually went much longer and much uh, more inclusive than I had originally planned. So uh, hopefully you have gotten that to the fullest extent, and now we can move on to some more specific episodes. So that's the plan. I have my notes, and I haven't even recorded the first one yet as of right now. So I am... Uh, pretty much just enjoying the pre-recording of most of these interviews. I've been able to jump on and just record an intro and an outro and uh, done some extra stuff, added some stuff on the website, added some stuff on the Patreon page. I've done a lot of interviews on other people's podcasts, and I've really enjoyed getting to take that time. I had done all of these interviews all within about two months' time, and it was a lot to cram in. It was really busy, a lot of editing, a lot of working out schedules and doing these super long interviews. Some of them went you know, three and four hours long. 
it was a big deal. And so it was nice to kind of take a break from that, do some other stuff, be interviewed by other people, do some of these catch up things that I've wanted to get done. And so now we'll get back into what I would consider more of the normal format for the podcast where I will be presenting the information. As I've said before, I will try to keep these episodes much shorter than these interviews and then season one were because there were definitely people that had mentioned that if the episodes were shorter, they would listen to more, but they were a little intimidated by seeing a two hour long episode and even one hour long was like the minimum and that was more than they could do. So I'm going to try to do that. I've said it many times. I'm not sure if I'll be able to, but we will see. And hopefully the rest of this season will go as well as the interviews did, if not even better. And so please stick around and enjoy the rest of season two as we come back next week for a new episode. Thank you very much for listening and being a listener of this show. Thank you for your support by leaving ratings and leaving reviews. Those have been extremely helpful. It's nice. I actually have a handful of reviews now. So that is very good. I feel really good about that. And thank you especially to the patrons for supporting financially. And that is definitely very appreciated. I will continue to try to put out some extra content on the Patreon page as we get into the normal format for season two. And I'm probably wrapping up the guest appearances that I was doing on other shows. The exclusive Patreon content will probably change a little bit. Um, I have some ideas, but I'm not exactly sure if I will go with them or not. So I will not mention that. But I will keep you updated. I will give updates like I usually do at the end of episodes. So listen up for that and you will be up to date. Also, you can follow on Twitter at FoundationsPC. And I do post episode announcements on there and any random information. It's actually very rare. I usually just jump on there once a day at the most and retweet a few things, post a few things I found around the internet and random places and yeah, uh, post an episode announcement and things like that. So it's not a whole lot. I'm not sending out tweets all day long. You will probably barely ever see my tweets if you have a lot of people that you follow i will probably be buried in your feed and you might have to specifically look me up there but i am there i do have some presence on there and that is another place to stay up to date and to get some more content and ideas and some funny memes so with that i guess i'm out of here peace This has been another episode of Our Foundation's podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.